and welcome back to GemCast. I'm Christina Shenby, and today I'm joined by Alicia Benner, and we are going to be talking about palliative care in the ED. Now, Alicia worked for many years as an internal medicine hospitalist physician and then became more and more interested in providing better symptom care and palliative care to patients throughout their illness and at the end of life. So she's gone back and done a fellowship in palliative care and was kind enough to come and share some of her wisdom with us. So Alicia, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks. Now, ER physicians don't always receive much training in palliative care and how to do it well. First off, let's clear up some definitions. Palliative care is sometimes equated or conflated with hospice care or with DNR. Can you clarify these terms? Absolutely. I think those are very common confusions. First, palliative care. Palliative care is is a specialized medical care for people with serious illness. It's focused on providing relief from symptoms and stress of a serious illness and improving quality of life for both the patient and the family. We describe it as an extra layer of support. So we work alongside the patient's primary physician team to provide symptom management along with curative attempts. And it can be provided in any stage during illness and at any age. Typically in the hospital, many patients and families are not knowledgeable about palliative care. So when I define my role in their care, I usually say it consists of three goals. One is to provide symptom management for symptoms that include somatic, like pain symptoms, as well as other symptoms such as anxiety or insomnia, that we're the experts in symptom management. The second is that we're here to provide support for patients and families because being in the hospital and being sick is hard on the whole family. And third, we're here to ensure that every decision about the patient's medical care is made consistent with the patient and family's values. So palliative care can be for people of any age from the start of their illness all the way through to their end of life to help provide symptom management help provide support for the patient and family, and then help make sure that their goals of care and their treatment are aligned. Now, how's that different from hospice? So hospice is a specific insurance benefit, typically by Medicaid, Medicare, if they have private insurance. And it's when two physicians concur that the patient's serious illness, whatever that may be, CHF, COPD, a malignancy, that if the disease took its expected trajectory, that their life expectancy is six months or less. And when a patient invokes hospice, they are provided a multidisciplinary team, including a physician or advanced practice provider like a nurse practitioner, a nurse, social worker, and chaplain, as well as a volunteer support. So it's multidisciplinary support to ensure the patient is being taken care of on all those different aspects. And for hospice to be active, they have to be seeking primarily symptom management and not curative efforts. Is that correct? That's correct. So this is a change in the focus of care away from, say, hospital-based care or curative efforts such as a transplant of a, of a diseased organ or curative chemotherapy. This is a shift towards goals of comfort and maintaining care in the home. And, where, and hospice can be supplied wherever the patient is. Hospice is not a place. It's a service. And it's delivered wherever the patient calls home, whether that's in their residence or that's in a long-term care facility, wherever they are. And it provides 100% coverage for those services, doctor services, nurses services, for that diagnosis for which they have six months or less to live. And now hospice patients can still come to the hospital if, for example, their symptoms cannot be adequately managed 
in the location that they are. So we do sometimes still see hospice patients and can manage them. But again, the goal is comfort and not curative efforts. One of the benefits of hospice is they will have a nurse or a nurse practitioner on call 24 hours a day to help manage their symptoms. So the goal is, is that symptoms can be managed outside of the hospital. But yes, if emergencies arise and the symptoms can't be controlled, coming to the hospital is always an option. And patients can always revoke hospice if their goals change. Now, how does this compare with DNR? Obviously, there's some overlap. So a DNR is just simply a decision about if a patient has a terminal arrhythmia that they would not want to be resuscitated for that arrhythmia, that they would want to be made comfortable rather than having resuscitative efforts. That's the only thing it implies. It doesn't even imply a do not intubate. It does not. And I think it's really important that it really doesn't imply do not treat. I think a Mm -hmm. lot of patients come into the hospital or into the ER with a do not resuscitate order, and there's a sense the patient wants less or different care. And that's why a discussion about goals is so critically important. A DNR should not be a preconceived understanding of what the patient does want. It's important to ask. And I find this language can be extremely confusing. I try to retitle it in my head as DNCPR, do not CPR, because really that's all they're saying is don't shock and don't do chest compressions. But they can get resuscitation in the terms of fluids, BiPAP, IV antibiotics, pressors, blood transfusions, pretty much everything else, unless, of course, they've said they don't want that. But the DNR order or form itself is very limited. And so it's important, as you say, to remember that. And more and more patients these days... I know a lot of patients in some places particularly are now filling out most forms or medical orders for scope of treatment forms. And these are those hot pink colored papers that are actually doctor's orders, so it's filled out with a physician that delineate the scope of care. What kind of things do those specify? One question is the question about resuscitation, but then the next section is scope of care, and that relates to do they want to go to the ICU and be intubated and receive pressors? The next level would be limited care, coming to the hospital, but not going to the ICU. And the third would be comfort measures. It also addresses things like the use of antibiotics, the use of IV fluids, and the use of tube feeds. And we're hoping that more and more of these forms will get filled out to really help patients and families communicate what their goals are. Thanks for that clarification. You said that one of the three goals of palliative care is symptom management. You guys are the experts in managing symptoms that can be otherwise quite debilitating. And I know pain is one of the most common symptoms that you deal with on the palliative care service. What are some of the other common ones? Any physical complaint, and that would be things like dyspnea, constipation, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, or even hiccups and fatigue, as well as what we consider non-somatic complaints, so things like anxiety, depression, insomnia. Recognizing delirium is really important, and also what we call existential suffering, and all of these can make physical symptoms worse. Existential suffering refers to a person coping with their illness and the changes that are happening to their life as a result of their illness. Things like hopelessness or fear of becoming a burden, loss of their basic dignity, a loss of their sense of self. And we see this happening with patients as they lose their independence as their illness progresses. Those are huge challenges. Let's start off in terms of what we can do in the emergency department with a case. Let's consider a 77-year-old male with a history of head and neck cancer who presents to us because of intractable pain. He's already on OxyContin, which is a long-acting opioid, at 60 milligrams twice a day. And then he has oxycodone on top of that, 10 milligrams every four to six hours for breakthrough pain. In spite of all those opioids, he's still having worsening pain. So what should we do in the ED for a patient like this? 
Well, I think the first step is doing what the ED is experts at, which is identifying the source of the pain. And I think it's important to not always attribute worsening or new pain for their primary diagnosis. For example, if a patient is having difficulty swallowing a head and neck cancer patient and odynophagia, it could be related to their cancer or it could be related to immunosuppression. They could have thrush or esophagitis or mucositis. Recognize the importance of a broad differential in a cancer patient because they do develop typical illnesses as well. For example, if they're thinking about chest pain in a patient with lung cancer, it's important to think broadly beyond the lung cancer to consider things like a pulmonary embolism, cardiac ischemia, herpes zoster, even reflux. But in general, especially in the ER setting, IV pain medications can work the most quickly. And switching narcotics, like from oxycodone to morphine or Dilaudid, may produce better results because the patient may have developed intolerance. When you are changing pain medications, it is always important to consider the patient's renal function, especially with morphine, as the metabolites are toxic and can rapidly accumulate with renal failure, and those toxidrome symptoms can include things like myoclonus and sedation. So choosing your narcotic carefully is always important. So we'll take a look, do a good exam in history, see if there's something other than just pain from their head and neck cancer going on, like esophagitis, etc. And then if we can't find anything else, maybe just consider giving them some IV pain medication to get ahead of their pain, and then switching them to something else. For example, you gave morphine or Dilaudid. And one of the links that I'll put on the show notes is to an opioid conversion app. It's called Opioids, and you can put in whatever the patient is on at home and get an equivalent dose of, for example, if they're on OxyContin, you can see what the equivalent dose of Dilaudid would be. And you may need to actually go down on that because if they're tolerant to OxyContin, they won't necessarily have the same tolerance to to Dilaudid. So, for example, how much lower would you go on the Dilaudid if you were switching them to that? So typically we dose reduce by about 25 to 50%. Mm -hmm. We dose reduce by on the calculator. The app that you can use to help convert opioids is called Opioids Dosage Conversion, and it's a free app that you can pull up on your phone. So for example, if we have a patient who is taking 10 milligrams of oxycodone short-acting PO every six hours at home, this would be equivalent to 15 milligrams of PO morphine every six hours. But that's assuming complete cross-tolerance, meaning the patient has the same tolerance to morphine as they have developed to oxycodone, which in real life they probably don't. So there's a little slider function there where you can reduce the tolerance, and that will reduce the dose by an equivalent amount. So Alicia said they typically reduce the dose by 25 to 50%, which in this case would mean 7.5 to 11-ish milligrams of morphine every six hours PO. So that would be a quick way to try converting them to a different medication that may work differently or may help them better. Obviously, you can also increase the dose of the medication, but there's always the risk that the tolerance to the medication in terms of pain control develops and outstrips the tolerance to respiratory depression. So patients who are tolerant to an opioid can increase their dose, but they may develop respiratory depression before they actually have relief of pain. And the goal is not necessarily complete relief of pain because that's not always possible, but it's to get it to a level that's tolerable that allows them to do their activities. In this example that I just gave, the dose was not that high, so you wouldn't necessarily have to convert it. You could just go up on the dose if that helps them. But just by way of example, I would encourage you to download the app and take a look, play around with it, and see what it can do for you. Now, of course, this patient who's on high-dose opioids may also have problems with constipation. And constipation may not seem like a big deal, but especially in the elderly patients, it can quickly become a big deal. 
These patients can become obstructed, they can require multiple enemas, manual disimpaction, all of which are unpleasant for the patient and also require pretty intensive ED resources. So what can we do to either prevent constipation or to aggressively treat it once it's started in these patients who are on very high-dose opioids? I'm glad you're asking about prevention because that's really the key. A general rule, anytime you're prescribing narcotics, that you should co-prescribe a laxative. And I think there's been a lot of use of colace over the years, but research has shown that colace, which is simply a stool softener, does not provide benefit in preventing or treating constipation and actually just adds to the pill burden. Mm. So we do not recommend colace to prevent or treat constipation. The most studied laxative for opioid-induced constipation is actually Senna, not Senna with colace, which is Senna-S, but just Mm -hmm. Senna. We usually use two tabs in the evening or one tab twice a day. Other medications include Miralax, Lactulose. Magnesium citrate is very effective, but you don't want to use that in the presence of renal failure. So it's just really important when you're giving a patient narcotics, you should always co-prescribe a laxative with it, particularly Senna, and then tell patients the importance of having our rule of thumb is one good bowel movement daily without straining. Hmm. And by good bowel movement, I mean soft. And I know Miralax, for example, is very safe and can be titrated and you can take it long term. For patients who are on chronic opioids, is Senna safe for long term use? Yep, absolutely. All of these are safe for chronic use. For our patients for whom we're starting an opioid, or if they come into the emergency room and we see that they're on opioids but not on a bowel regimen, we want to go ahead and prescribe a prophylactic Senna, which is a pro-motility agent, which helps overcome the reduced motility from the opioids, as well as a stool softener such as Miralax or Lactulose. Probably Miralax is going to be the easiest to acquire since it's over-the-counter. These can both be used long-term and then the Miralax and actually the Senna too can be titrated up if they start to have symptoms of constipation. For patients who come in with already pretty severe constipation, then mag citrate works great as long as there's no renal failure. And then of course, the options of enemas or manual disimpaction if needed. Sounds like a good plan. Another common symptom that you treat is dyspnea. And of course, this can be at the time of death, but then also just for patients who have recurrent severe COPD or CHF exacerbations who are frequently returning to the ED and being hospitalized. Obviously, we're going to treat their disease-specific conditions. So for, for this patient, let's say he comes in with a COPD exacerbation. We're going to give him the NEBS and steroids. What else can we do just from a symptom standpoint? It's important to know that the use of low-dose narcotics for dyspnea is very helpful. And by low-dose, it can be as low as 2.5 milligrams of oxycodone or 1 milligram of IV morphine. And oftentimes, we'll have patients with bad COPD, and we'll actually schedule 2.5 milligrams of oxycodone or five milligrams of oxycodone every six hours, not to treat pain, but just to treat the dyspnea. And we find that they actually feel much better and their exercise capacity increases. What we find is it does not suppress the respiratory drive. I think that's a fear of a lot of physicians that we're going to decrease the respiratory drive and put them in danger. But that's why I emphasize low dose, a test dose in a controlled setting, and see how the patient does. But we've had good efficacy with this. And this is really a a standard of care in patients with long-term respiratory ailments from whatever reason that has been shown to be beneficial. That's a great tip. So next time I'm treating a COPD or and using the NEBS, the steroids, or maybe a CHF patient that I put on BiPAP, maybe just for their symptoms to relieve their suffering and their air hunger, a milligram of morphine might help and should certainly not hurt. Another thing you treat a lot of is nausea and vomiting. And obviously there can be a lot of different mechanisms by which nausea and vomiting occur, anything from bowel obstruction to pain medication-related 
to central causes. What are your thoughts and thought process on what you prescribe for patients? I think first and foremost, we're trying to cause the least side effects with any medication we use. So Zofran is a good choice because it's the least sedating, but you also want to keep in mind QTC prolongation. So when patients are coming to the ER and they're receiving antibiotics, which can prolong the QTC, and receiving Zofran, which can prolong the QTC, and whatever medications they may be on at home, you want to think about grabbing an EKG first to check their QTC. As a caveat, if the patient is at end of life and their goals are symptom relief rather than life prolongation, using whatever antiemetic works for them is your best bet. So in terms of choosing anti-nausea agents, you want to be thinking of the etiology. So if somebody is having, if a patient's having nausea from chemotherapy, we know that Zofrin is the most effective. But just remembering that any medication really outside Zofran is going to have significant sedating properties. So Compazine, Phenergan, Reglan, all these medications are sedating. So it's just important to use with caution, especially in your elderly patients. Antiemetics actually work by a number of different mechanisms and receptors. So I wanted to go through some of the more common ones that we use. Zofran is a good all-purpose go-to antiemetic. It was first studied and used most for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. The generic name is Ondansetron, and it's a 5-HT3 serotonin receptor antagonist. The main side effects, as Alicia mentioned, think about QTC. It's rare. It's unlikely, but it can happen. So consider getting an EKG and just checking the QTC, particularly if they are already on other QTC prolonging agents. Zofran also can be constipating used long term. So if you're sending somebody home with a script, at least warn them about that or tell them to take Marilax, etc. Reglan is another commonly used one, particularly for migraines. The generic is metoclopramide. It is a dopamine antagonist and stimulates upper GI motility, so it's good for people with gastroparesis typically. Compazine is prochlorperazine. It's a first-generation antipsychotic, so it's a dopamine antagonist. And these antipsychotics also can prolong the QTC, so the same recommendation applies. Phenergan Promethazine is the generic name, is a central and peripheral histamine antagonist and an anticholinergic. And it is, again, useful for a lot of different causes of nausea. It can be somewhat sedating, as can the compazine and reglan. Antivert or meclizine is an antihistamine and anticholinergic used typically for nausea and vomiting from vertigo. Ativan can also have antiemetic properties. The generic is lorazepam. This binds to and agonizes the GABA receptors. In older adults particularly, you want to be very cautious because Ativan can have quite sedating effects, so I would use a very small dose, like a 0.5 milligrams. Haldol can also be useful as an antiemetic. It's a first-generation antipsychotic, and the generic is haloperidol, so it's a dopamine antagonist. The QTC warning still applies. Again, extremely rare. Haldol is particularly used for patients with cyclic vomiting, but can also be used for other sources of vomiting. You mentioned also delirium, and we had done a podcast way back when on delirium, but what are some things from the palliative care standpoint that you look at in terms of delirium? So I think the most important thing about delirium is delirium is typically from an underlying cause, and so identifying the source of delirium rather than just saying they're confused is really important. We also know that delirium increases the chance of morbidity and mortality, and so when you're talking to patients and families about a delirious patient, 
it's important to put that in the broader context of their illness. So a patient that's more delirious is a sicker patient. It's also important to recognize not just hyperactive delirium, which is hallucinations and agitation, but hypoactive delirium. If somebody's even more depressed or reticent to talk than they normally are, some people may attribute that to feeling down or depressed, but it can be a sign of hypoactive delirium, and they may have an underlying UTI, and that's the reason they're not feeling well. Mm. Those are great tips because it is easy to just assume somebody is, has dementia when really it's, it's a delirium. Now, I know another major role for palliative care, in addition to symptom control, is discussing goals of care and advanced planning with patients to find out what they would want in terms of resuscitative measures and general treatment. And this is an area that's fraught with difficulties, particularly in the ED. And I think a large part of it has to do with the fact that patients and their families don't necessarily understand what is involved in resuscitative efforts and the chances of survival, much less return to baseline. There's also a lot of time constraints in the ED that make it challenging, in addition to the uncertainty that I can't give them an exact percentage chance that their family member will return to baseline or will recover at all. For example, if we have an elderly patient with a large intracranial hemorrhage, I can certainly say there's a chance that they will recover, but a high likelihood that if they do, they will no longer be living and functioning at the same level of independence as before. For example, they may not be able to feed themselves or talk or recognize their family, but I can't say the chance of each of those. There's obviously a lot of pre-event health factors that will go into their chance of recovery after their illness, such as did they already have dementia or did they already have cancer or were they wheelchair or bed bound? So that part can be useful in discussions with families. But in the ED, we tend to have pretty brief conversations given our time constraints. And sometimes they go something like, if you were to stop breathing, would you want us to put a breathing tube in? If your heart stopped, would you want us to do chest compressions and shock you? Hopefully we've at least moved away from saying, do you want us to do everything, which is incredibly vague. But I wanted to see if you could share with us some phrases or ways of discussing goals of care with patients and families, given the brief time frame that we have. This is such an important question, and I think it really starts with understanding that even in a brief amount of time, you can really get to know a patient and the family. Um, What have they discussed in the past? Ask them what their life was like at home prior to this admission. Had they ever had discussions about what quality of life would not be consistent with their values? Did they have an advanced directive? I try to gather a larger context about the course of illness and perceptions of quality of life rather than focusing on the acute event. Mm. So I really try to get to know the, the patient. And if I can't get to know the patient by talking to the patient, I get to know them through the family. So if the patient's had a gradual decline over the past several months and is no longer being able to live independently or engage in activities that are important to them, that they are no longer able to do their activities of daily living, how does that impact them? This is particularly true in the context of when somebody has pre-existing dementia. I think that sometimes families see gradual decline over time, but when they look at the patient's quality of life over the course of months to years and are able to step back from that, they might think about this acute event in less of a crisis mode and more of a, this is another part of their chronic decline. Mm-hmm. One question I commonly ask patients and families is to tell me something about them that will help me take the very best care of them. Mm. It's a takeoff on the what's called the Chochanov dignity question, where it's really important even a short period of time to get patients and families to open up to you about what's important to them and to step away from the crisis mode for just a moment. So what kind of answers do you get to that question? 
I've had a lot of different answers to that question. That's a very good, that's a good question for me. I've had people tell me that if they can't live independently any longer, that that's not consistent with who they are. Mm-hmm. I try to unpack that because we have found that in stroke patients, people very much fear stroke and they fear disability and they fear not being able to live independently. But once patients survive a stroke, they are able to, some patients, able to adapt to that new disability and, re, and reimagine their life in that new way, even with a disability they would have never thought tolerable. So it's important in that time to really try to unpack from the family and the patient what's important to them and what those fears come from. Mm. And it's really not as time-consuming as people might think. I know the ER is a crazy, busy place, but taking five or ten minutes to gain the trust of the patient and the family so they open up to you is really important and so helpful. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I've certainly read that before as well, that people who are healthy, if you ask them, what would your quality of life be like if you were wheelchair bound or if you were on dialysis? And they'll rate it very low. But then if you ask people who are actually in those states, they don't rate it as low. So I think that's part of the human capability of adapting to new situations. So let's role play for a minute. Let's pretend that you are in the ER as the physician, and I'm the daughter of an 85-year-old woman who is coming in with what looks like on x-ray or CT, a large lung mass. So most likely a new diagnosis of lung cancer. How would your discussion go with me? Well, I think the most important thing would be to find out how things have been going at home. So I would I'd really like to get to know your mom. So tell me how things were a couple of years ago and how things are now. Help me get to know her. Well, she's always been pretty healthy and doesn't like seeing doctors, but she usually goes once a year for a checkup. And she lives on her own, but over the last few, I guess, four or five years, she's had more difficulty. And now in the last few months, or maybe the last year, I guess, she's had to have more help around the house. So what does that help entail? She can't drive anymore, um, so she can't do her groceries or shopping. Over the last four or five months, she's had more trouble breathing and seemed more confused. And so we've, we've had to have somebody come in and help her during the day with, you know, just dressing and cooking and and then I take care of her bills and paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Some days she doesn't even recognize me when I come see her. And has she been more tired recently? More tired, sleeping more during the day. She used to be able to read or do activities, but now that's been, she hasn't been doing those things anymore. And why do you think your mom didn't want to seek medical care very often when she was younger? Uh, She's always just been very independent. She said that she wouldn't want to go live in a nursing home. She always wanted to stay in her house that she's lived in for 40 years. That's just been what's important to her. And I think the big question now is what to do with what we found on this chest CT. The next question is, do you pursue things like biopsying? And then what would you do with that information? So do you have a sense of what your mom from a couple years ago before the memory changes became so prevalent and so disabling for her? Do you have a sense of what your mom would want at this age if she had a new lung cancer, knowing that treatment would likely entail perhaps a large surgery, perhaps chemotherapy and radiation? Do you have a sense of what she might have said? Five years ago, she might have wanted to do all of those things, but I think since she's become, she's had more of the memory problems and more difficulty with her activities, I don't think she would necessarily want to do all those things now. And I worry because a lot of those tests and treatments are hard on patients as they get older and they're more frail. And so the question would be, would she tolerate those treatments? And if not, does it make sense to pursue 
an invasive procedure to get test results. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think since she probably wouldn't want to go through chemotherapy and surgery, that maybe it's not as important to do those things. And I think that's a very caring decision. I think a lot of families want to find out and do something. And sometimes the most important thing you can do for patients and families is to just step back and not do nothing, but shift the goals to making sure they feel as good as possible as long as possible. So we'll end our role play there. So that was just an example. And I think some of the phrases that you used about saying that's a caring decision, you can certainly validate patients who want to do everything because for them, goals of care are staying alive, even if there's going to be a lot of pain associated with certain avenues. So hopefully that conversation gave some ideas for ways to approach the the topic. And you're right, that didn't take that long. Getting an assessment of what have the last few years been like for your parent or your family member, and it only took a few minutes to really get a picture of that. And I think it's really important what you just said, that, that patients and families have the right to make whatever decisions they want. We're here to support that, but also provide them other information to really make a fully educated decision about all of their treatment options. Now, returning to the question of CPR and DNR, you had mentioned a tool that can help calculate the probability of returning to neurologic baseline after in-hospital CPR. Can you explain a little bit more about that? I think it's important to remember that patients and families typically get their context about resuscitation from either stories they've heard about people coming through and everything was fine, or from television and they see somebody on television having resuscitation and they're being discharged from the hospital, their Mm -hmm. normal self two days later. And we know that that's not realistically what happens for most patients. The chance of surviving neurologically intact back to your fire level of function is lower and lower with the severity of chronic illness. And there's actually a calculator that you can use called the GOFAR, G-O-F-A-R score. It's an online calculator. And this is not a calculator that I recommend using with patients and families, but we know that the chance of surviving neurologically intact from this study for all comers, healthy patients, the chance is about 30%. And that's for in-hospital cardiac arrest, right? That's correct. That is for in-house cardiac arrest, not for someone who's on the street and is found down. That's Mm -hmm. That's a different statistic. I think as clinicians, we have a sense that patients will or won't do well with CPR. And this tool takes into account the patient's age and comorbidities and gives you a number of the chance of them surviving neurologically intact. And by neurologically intact, I mean with little to no deficits, not being on a ventilator, not requiring a feeding tube, not with significant disability like hemiplegia or seizures after their resuscitation effort. When you put in the patient's characteristics, you come up with a number. And for a patient with an advanced malignancy who's in their 80s, the chance of them surviving neurologically intact back to their prior level of functioning is about 3%. And I think it's not a number to throw at patients and families, but it helps you talk to patients and families and say, we know that when patients have severe chronic illnesses that we wish that we had better outcomes, but we know when patients have advanced cancer, when they're frail with dementia, when they come in with a severe pneumonia, that, that all of those characteristics make them less likely to survive. That's definitely a useful calculator that I would I would recommend taking a look at. And as you said, not necessarily to throw numbers at patients unless they ask for them, and some patients do, but to help ourselves get, uh, get a sense. Just as an example for the GoFAR score, if you pull that up online and put in a 40-year-old with no comorbidities, 
their chance of surviving in-hospital cardiac arrest with good outcome is about 27%, so it's not bad. Now, if you take that same patient and say they're 90 years old, still with no comorbidities, the chance is 9.4%, still pretty good. Now, if you add in that that patient has sepsis and hypotension and admitted from a skilled nursing facility, now their chance of survival is about 1.7%. So really the comorbidities that the patient comes in with play a huge role in determining their chance for surviving in hospital cardiac arrest. Let's talk now about symptom management in the patient who's actively dying. So by this, I mean patients who are likely to die within the next few hours or days and aggressive efforts are contraindicated either because of futility or because the patient has advanced directives, their DNR, DNI, and so we can't intubate the patient and we're focusing on comfort care or minimizing their suffering. What are some things we can do? I think oftentimes at end of life, many people associate the only medication to alleviate suffering is a narcotic drip, whether that be a Dilaudid or or a morphine drip. And while narcotics are helpful in alleviating pain as well as dyspnea and cough, it's also important to know about adjunctive medications like benzodiazepines. So, for example, Ativan is beneficial for anxiety. It's also beneficial for myoclonus, even hiccups and insomnia. And Haldol for patients who are agitated. Haldol is actually a very good anti-emetic and anti-nausea medication and can also help with hallucinations. So you really want to be looking at the patient and looking at what symptoms they are suffering from and then adjust your medication regimen accordingly. Now let's say the patient has dyspnea from a CHF exacerbation or COPD and we're not doing BiPAP, we're not doing invasive measures. What kind of dose of, say, morphine would you put them on? I think it would depend if they're an opiate-naive patient or not. Mm -hmm. If a patient is opiate-naive, typically we would give somebody maybe a scheduled dose of a milligram every three to four hours and then have an as-needed dose to be given every 30 minutes. They will show you what they need. I Mm -hmm. think starting off lower and slower is always a good idea unless they're acutely suffering, but it's also really important to ask the patient and family what their goals are. Mm -hmm. It's important to ask the patient's what balance is right for them? Would you rather be more comfortable even if that meant you were more sleepy or is the reverse true? Mm -hmm. So to finish up, you mentioned that part of what you do is help assess and manage the existential suffering. So patients who are facing death, the loss of sense of self, to make a human connection with the patient and to help relieve their suffering, be it physical, existential, or both, is really one of the most important things we can do as doctors. Do you have any words of wisdom or thoughts about how we can best do that within our limited encounters? I think the studies have demonstrated again and again that something as simple as sitting down in the room Mm. in a crowded ER, that can be very difficult. But the benefit of dragging a chair over to the curtained area and sitting down shows the patient and family that you are there for them, that you're not in a rush, and that you are here to listen to what's going on with them. I think just starting there, sitting down, is really important. And then getting to know the patient and family is incredibly important. It can be done quickly. Tell me what's been going on. How have the past few months been for you? How have you tolerated hospitalizations in the past? A helpful communication tool to keep in your pocket are what are called wish, worry, or hope concern statements. So for example, if a patient has progressive cancer or progressive shortness of breath, you can say things like, I wish the news were different, but I worry that this progressive cancer means the chemotherapy 
likely isn't working. And the wish statement really aligns you on the same side with them, that we wish Mm -hmm. that things were better. And we do. We wish that patients didn't have progressive disease. We wish they felt better. But the worry statement allows you to say, we need to think about this in a broader context. Mm -hmm. Or I hope that treatment will be successful, but I'm concerned that, you know, you've been in the hospital several times in the last couple of months. I'm concerned that this means your body's getting more tired. Those are some great phrases and ideas. And I agree. Sometimes echoing back to patients what they've said can be helpful too, saying, I see that you've been suffering with this. I wish that this was not the case. Something that I say a lot is, I was hoping that we wouldn't find anything on your x-ray, but we did, and I wish things were different. And the importance of silence. Silence is really important to give people time to digest information. It's important to give them time to react. Mm. And essentially, it's just important to sometimes just hold the moment and hold the space. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for being willing to share some of your expertise. Thank you for all you do taking care of patients. Hopefully for our listeners, this has been useful for you and you can take away a few pearls. Thank you so much for having me. In the show notes, I've put links to the GoFAR calculator score, as well as the apps, one for opioid conversion and another one that's called Palliative Care Fast Facts that has quick reads on a number of different topics related to palliative care. I've also put some references. There are several great ones from the American Association of Family Physicians that have pearls and tips for pharmacological management of the end of life. And some of it goes beyond what we've discussed here. There's also a paper on communicating with patients and families. So I highly recommend that you take a look at the show notes and read those references. As always, you can feel free to comment on the blog, gempodcast.com, and follow me on Twitter, at gempodcast. Thanks for listening.